Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Please welcome Justin Go. Thank you. Um, I'm glad that there are people here. It's very exciting. Um, I had the pleasure of doing three events so far where the people mostly consisted of people who worked at the bookstore and their children. Um, <laughs> uh, before that, I was um, on tour in Germany because the book actually came out in Germany first, which was really a strange experience um, because there was a, an actor who performed it in German, which is really a really weird thing. And every time I did a question, I had to stop and let it be translated, the answer, back into German. Um, and the readings there were actually one hour and 30 minutes long, um, which is, I'm not going to read anywhere near that long. <laughs> but the, the, um, the, uh, I was like asking them, I'm like, okay, oh yeah, the reading is an hour and 30, 30 minutes long, but like how long is the actual, like, you know, reading, like a lot of it's a like questions, they're like 40 to 50 minutes. <laughs> they pay five euros, they want their money's worth. <laughs> so, um, so it was hard because they gave me so many pieces that when I had to do my American tour I didn't know what to, what to choose to read. Um, but since, like I know you guys, I'm actually going to read the good parts and not just the, the, I don't know, the marketing parts. Um, <laughs> the, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to read in LA since I'm from uh, Palos Verdes, not so far away, and I was born in Santa Monica, um, so I'm a, sort of a real LA person. Um, I started the book about six years ago, or seven years ago, or whatever, and I had no idea that it was even going to be published. Um, I, if I had known how hard it was going to be, I never would have tried to do it, but luckily I, I willfully did not educate myself about the, the business, because it's, it's extremely discouraging. Um, the book is about a young, if you don't know what it's about, it's about a young American who learns he may be heir to the fortune of a British mountaineer. He basically gets a, a letter in the mail um, from, these, from these lawyers saying, um, we think you are related to this, to this fortune, and if you can prove that you're related to this woman that the mountaineer left his money to, then you can inherit it. So he goes to England in search of this story. Um, and after that, it switches between the present and the past. Um, I think the, pa the scenes in the past I kind of like the most, so I'm going to read two different scenes from the past here. They're not very long. Um, I think it's, it's a little pertinent to current events in a way, well, in, in two ways, actually, unfortunately. The, the first thing that it's pertinent is that it, the 100th anniversary of the war is coming up in the end of July um, of the outbreak of World War I, which is a, a war that's pretty much forgotten. And, in America, and to a large extent anyway, it's completely overshadowed. And I think its consequences are still felt, but also the experience of, of what it was and what it meant for civilization and our ideas of, 
warfare and kind of the end of progress. Um, all of those, I, th I think, I have some real meaning, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see if if people really do think about it when it, when it, the time comes. They, they certainly will be in Europe. Um, I started this book because I was really interested in the war ever since I was uh, like in high school because I read All Quiet on the Western Front and I was fascinated by sort of the these people who were idealistic in a way going into this conflict that they couldn't have imagined where all the mechanization, the technology was put to bad purposes for the first time in, in history on an unprecedented scale. And I think in a way there's, a, there's something that kind of there's a, a relevance to that in, in our lives too, because I look at my phone and I wonder, you know, is this making my life better? You know, all these things that we think, you know, are indisputably good for us, you know, we have to, s sometimes they have surprising results. Um, but I, I really love this sort of, this world I, I got drawn into. Um, I started reading, I studied history in college and I started reading the letters of Wilfred Owen, who's this incredible poet who died a complete unknown and is now probably thought to be the greatest war poet in the English language, certainly the 20th century. And that's what the title of the book, The, the Steady Running of the Hour, is from one of his poems. It's in the beginning. Um, and his letters were just incredibly beautiful and they made me kind of think about the war. And the first chapter I'm going to read is, is uh, or a part of a chapter is, is a, a scene that sort of shows the war on its... I mean, the challenge is try to, to try to show it on a sort of a human scale, taking something so large and, and, and showing what it's like for an individual, especially in a, in a conflict like most conflicts where people didn't necessarily hate the people that they were fighting against. Um, so this is set in the psalm, and um, this, the main character here is Ashley, who is the, the mountain climber, but he's in, at war right now. Um, and he, he fell in love with this woman, Imogen, who's sort of a mysterious woman who's very much unlike him. Um, and now he's been sent to France, and he's in France, and this is the first chapter where he's got there. He's just, been, he's just arrived. Um, and uh, he's in one of the, the Battle of the Somme, basically just started in July and now it's sort of become autumn. 5th of October, 1916, Resolve Trench, Somme, France. There are a thousand kinds of weapons here and Ashley has seen them all. When they're in a museum one day, he thinks, they will know how we went back to the Middle Ages. But Ashley had seen medieval weapons in the Tower of London, and even the forest had been finer and cleaner tools than some in this war. The dugout is lit by a single candle set in an empty wine bottle on the table. Beside the table are a pair of upturned crates serving as stools. A few pictures have been tacked to the dugout walls, photographs of actresses torn from the illustrated papers. Ashley rinses his mouth with his canteen and takes his pistol from its leather holster, the oily black barrel still warm to the touch. He sets the pistol on the table, but he does not reload it. Fully clothed, Ashley lies down on one of the makeshift bunks. Two nets of chicken wire hung on a wooden frame. A muddy blanket lies beneath them. He pulls an overcoat over his body and tries to sleep. Three days ago, the Berkshires had la launched an, artillery, an attack in the sector, but the Germans repelled them with intense artillery and machine gun fire. The Germans rallied in a counterattack that ended with desperate hand-to-hand -hand fighting here at Resolve Trench. Since then, there have been many wounded stranded in the shattered forest of no man's land, just beyond the British wire. By, mo by now, most of these had died or been brought in, but there remained one wounded German who had been weeping and raving all the while. He was still alive. He lay less than 20 yards from the British frontline trench. Ashley was the only man in the company who understood German. 
He had been listening to the wounded man for three days. The German passed between periods of lucidity and great delirium. At times he seemed to be dictating a letter to his wife, telling her that he was ready to die. At times he addressed the British directly, describing his wounds in detail, describing the shell hole he lay in, saying that he was running out of water but could survive if only they would bring him in. He explained that he had no quarrel with the English, that they were all brothers in God's kingdom. Except for the word Kameraden, which the German repeated over and again, the British understood none of this. The men nicknamed the wounded German Kameraden. One of the oldest men in the platoon, a soft-spoken postman called Stuart, had actually gone over the top at night to bring in Kameraden, but the German had seen him in the moonlight and began strafing him with machine gun fire. Stuart crawled back to the trench with ever seeing Kameraden. Against all expectations, Kameraden lived on, moaning all the while. He quoted popular songs or nursery ballads, or nursery rhymes or folk ballads, but mostly he recited poetry. Kameraden knew prodigious amounts of poetry, and Ashley wondered if he was a schoolmaster or a professor or even a poet himself, though he doubted the last. The German quoted long epics he knew by heart, and even the denser men could tell these were poems from the rhythm of the words or the patterns of the rhymes. Ashley recognized only a few, Goethe's Minions Gesang, some verses by Heinrich Heine. One morning at Don Stantu, Ashley was astonished to hear what he believed to be a German translation of Byron's She Walks in Beauty but the man fell into weeping before it was completed. Late last night, as Ashley was on watch, Kameraden's moaning reached a fevered crescendo. The men sleeping on the trench floor complained of the noise. Ashley told the men to go back to sleep. He found Bradley, the platoon sergeant, and told him he was going into no man's land to see Kameraden. It's hopeless, sir. You can't save him. The Huns might see you. I know, Ashley said, but I can't stand it any longer. Ashley pulled a pair of thick toe stockings over his knees and elbows, then checked the cartridges in his revolver cylinder. He traveled north along the trench to get closer to Kameraden, stepping over mud, sleeping in niches in the wall or wrapped in capes on the muddy trench floor. They groaned in half-sleep or rolled in the mud. Ashley trudged up to the forward sap nearest Kameraden, really only a fortified shell hole holding a sentry and a few flares. The sentry jerked to the side when he saw Ashley, swiveling his rifle and then lowering it. Thought you was a German, sir. Can't hear nothing over that blubbering. Certainly not. You understand German, don't you, sir? What's he moaning on about now? He wants us to kill him. Ashley saw the outline of the sentry's head move from side to side as he shook his head. His face was sheathed in blackness. He never said that before, did he, sir? No. I'm going over. Don't fire unless they open on me, and then only well to the left. Eleven o'clock at the farthest, you hear? I shan't be far off. Ashley rinsed his mouth from his canteen and spat into the mud. He climbed over the parapet. On elbows and knees, he zigzagged through the British wire into the morass of no man's land. His chin trailed in the mud. It took 20 minutes to go 30 yards. The stench was rich and sweet, decaying corpses and chloride of lime. He ascended the rim of a huge shell crater and floundered over. Inside, there was a mound of dead Highland soldiers and muddied kilts and knee socks. The German was still wailing away, his voice hoarse. The sound was coming from the right. Ashley called further until the sound was very close. He flopped into another large shell hole. He saw Kameraden's murky silhouette a few yards away, but Ashley was afraid the German might have a weapon, so he lay in silence, waiting. After a few minutes, a flare went up over no man's land, and the scene was illuminated. 
Kamaradin was a punk corporal from a Jaeger regiment, known as Forest Hunter, as an expert rifleman. He was on his back, his tunic soaked with black blood where shrapnel had perforated his chest. His eyes were open, but his face was turned up to the sky, watching the flare sink through the darkness. He was holding a water bottle in one hand and clutching his wounds with the other. Ashley crawled up beside Kamaradin and spoke softly in German. At first, the man barely seemed to notice, perhaps mistaking him for a hallucination. He breathed in a terrible, sucking wheeze. Suddenly, the German's head bolted and turned. He begged for water. He said his own canteen was empty and he had already drunk all the water in the shell hole. Ashley took the water bottle from his waist and poured it onto Kamaradin's cracked lips. The liquid ran over his face and stained beard. Kamaradin gulped feverishly, muttering something indecipherable. Ashley heaved the German onto his back and began carrying him toward the British line, crouching as low as he could. Kamaradin whined in pain. He was very heavy. Ashley could feel the man's blood dripping down onto his neck, into his shirt, and it was hard to crouch with the weight of the body upon him. The mud sucked back at every step. Ashley lost his balance and dropped Kamaradin. The German moaned as Ashley lifted him again. It took 10 minutes just to get out of the crater. A machine gun burst open on the German side. The British returned a few sharp rifle rounds, then a Lewis gun began rattling to Ashley's right. He would never get Kamaradin all the way to resolve trench. He went on forward anyway, the German raving with the pain of movement. It took 20 minutes to reach the shell hole full of dead Highlanders. They went over the lip and Kamaradin slipped from Ashley's grasp and rolled to the bottom. Ashley pulled Kamaradin's face from the mud and propped him up. The man was in delirium again. He was talking to his wife, the mud trickling down his face. Ashley cursed and drew his revolver. He stepped back and tried to level his pistol at the German's bare head. He pulled the trigger, but his hand was shaking. The bullet clipped the man's scalp, tearing off a chunk. He moaned and whimpered, raising his hands above his face as if the flesh of his palms were any protection. Ashley moved closer and fired again. The bullet tore through Kamaradin's finger and went into his eye. There was much blood. Kamaradin slumped over. Ashley crouched in the shell hole and watched another flare go up. The German machine gun was traversing the horizon wildly. A few grenades went off in the distance. Ashley bent over the mud and vomited his supper. It had been biscuits and bully anyway, and he was sick of biscuits and bully. Ashley spat and drained his canteen with a long drink. He waited half an hour until the guns went quiet. He crawled slowly back to the forward sap and tumbled in beside the sentry. So that's the war. Um, I, if you can believe it, I, I chose maybe out of some kind of weird um, masochistic urge to read that chapter in every reading in Germany. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the book isn't actually, um, most of it is, is not, I mean, there's definitely some trench warfare, but it's not like that's all, all of what the book's about. It's just, um, I guess, I thought it was, it's kind of an example of, of how I tried to to use the things that I had read about and, and distill them into some personal experience. And also because the war, um, I don't know, I feel like, I didn't think about this when I wrote it, but the reason that I, I, f I think the scene is kind of interesting is that the whole point is that he was trying to save the guy. Um, but the other part of the war, a lot of what the book is about really is, is you know, this character actually isn't, isn't a soldier. I mean, he wasn't a professional soldier. He was, he was just a guy who was part of a, a country that was at war. And what, he, what really defined himself 
for him, you know, what, how he would have seen himself was as a climber. And I was always really interested in Everest. Um, but one day I sort of realized that all these people who had been involved in these 20s expeditions, the original expeditions to Mount Everest in the 1920s had all taken part in the war. And the expeditions were really, are really fascinating because the, the, the territory they were going into, everything was so unknown. To get to Everest, Everest, Tibet had been a completely closed country, and so had Nepal. And so to get there, they really had to literally walk off the map. Um, and no one really knew what was waiting for them. They had three expeditions in the 20s. Um, and the, the first one, they just had to figure out how to even get at the mountain. And the experience was, it's, you know, the famous sort of idea about Everest is all about these guys in like tweeds sort of, you know, climbing the mountain who didn't know any better and they, you know, brought champagne there and read Hamlet to each other on tents, which is pretty much true, um, <laughs> as, as ridiculous as it sounds, but they weren't fools. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I mean, we, we use wool underwear now, so it, it's not as crazy as it sounds, but what really drew me to it was, was partly the, the contrast between how they saw climbing as this beautiful thing that transformed their lives and the reality of how difficult it was. Um, and, I don't know, the, the commitment that they had to, 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 to try to kind of make something out of their life and find meaning after after something like the war um, was was really fascinating to me and I became really interested in the world of uh, of the the climbers at the time um, so I am going to read if I can find it I seem to have lost my place just one little little part um, that sort of describes these two characters Ashley and Imogen who um, who've just met and they're attracted to each other and they don't really know why I think um, well, Ashley knows why he's attracted to Imogen because she's sort of a bohemian woman that's unlike anybody he's no, he's met before. Like a lot of guys at this time, his experience of women would have been pretty limited. Um, and you know, these guys, the guy I was just describing was at the front, was 20 years old, 19, it would have been really normal, in a command of 60 men um, with, in a life or death situation. Um, they had to grow up very fast. And yet, in some ways, they were incredibly naive or had had a very limited experience. And this woman, Imogen, although she also has very limited options, I think knows more of what she wants in life, and I think he's attracted to her. Um, but the thing that he knows about is climbing, and in this chapter, he's sort of, you get to see Ashley through her eyes, I suppose, as he talks about mountain climbing. So this is the last thing I'm going to read. It's just a few pages. Um, so they've just met. Um, they only spend get to really spend six days together, and they've just met at a... Uh, They've run into each other a couple times, and they went for a, park, to, for a walk in the park, and it got dark, and now they're in a cafe in London in 1916. So this happens right before the scene I just read. They are seated in a cafe, at a table in the cafe beside the mirrored wall, their bodies perching and sinking into gaudy stuffed chairs of scarlet velour. The fog of tobacco smoke is tremendous. A female waiter emerges from the haze to take their order. Her paper collar soiled and yellowing, a starched napkin hung over the sleeve of her back jack black jacket. Imogen orders a pair of brandies, winking at Ashley. He cranes his neck to look around the room. Rather jolly in its own way, isn't it queer to see women waiters? The waitress returns bearing two short-stemmed snifters on her tray. The brandy twirls in the glasses as she sets them on the tablecloth. Imogen leans across the table. I want you to tell me about your climbing, once and for all. What do you want to know? Anything and everything. I've always been curious. We used to go to Switzerland when I was little, when we lived in Paris. I remember being terrified of the mountain guides. All morning they'd be waiting in the ho front of the hotel for the guests. 
They'd never come in. They'd only stand outside smoking their pipes and talking in frightful dialect. And the places had such mysterious names. The Mer de Glace, it's near Mont Blanc, isn't it? Ashley nods. It's part of the same massif. He lifts his napkin from the table, pulling off the silver ring and spreading the square of linen. He draws his fountain pen from his pocket and touches the nib on the, twice on the linen to start the ink. This makes a pair of black dashes, and from here, Ashley begins to draw a crude map of the mountain range. This is the Mont Blanc Massif, he says. Here's Mont Blanc itself, a little under 16,000 feet. Here's Chamonix Valley in the town. You probably stayed there. The whole range is less than 20 miles long, perhaps 10 across. The pin's nib glides along the linen, Ashley pressing down to thicken where the, peaks, the ridge line where the peaks connect. Here's Maud at about 14,600. Damned good climb up the southern face. You've climbed it? Ashley nods. This is your Mer de Glace. Did you know it flows at about 100 yards a year? Imogen shakes her head. Have you been on it? Once, he says. It was very slick. We came down it at midnight without crampons. Rather unpleasant business. It must have been beautiful. I wasn't paying attention. They order a second round from the waitress. Ashley takes another brandy, Imogen a creme de cassis. I'm surprised at you, she says. You haven't many rom romantic notions about climbing. You speak as though you're only interested in the heights of mountains or in their features. I imagined it was something different. Talking about it doesn't do any good, Ashley says. The best parts can't be explained. You might try. I'd like to understand. Ashley frowns, capping his pen. He takes a silver case from his tunic pocket and writes a cigarette, setting the case on the table. Imogen takes a cigarette for herself, and Ashley raises his eyebrows. You're going to smoke here? She gives a coy nod and reply. Ashley lights his cigarette and begins to speak, staring down at the cut glass ashtray. It is impossible to live without danger, Ashley explains. The danger is always there, the hazard of wasted lives, of decades bent over a desk, of squalid and lonely deaths in hospital beds. Fools turned their faces away from danger and pretended it immunity, but others went to the fountainhead of life. And what, Imogen wonders, is that? Ashley taps his cigarette on the ashtray. I couldn't say, it's different for every man. Or woman, she says, but what is it to you? There isn't a name for it, Ashley says. One could call it endeavor or struggle or give it a name, but then it only sounds silly. It's a name one gives to something one needs that isn't essential, something one wants for no good reason at all. Not an animal desire, a desire that comes not from one's body, but one's soul. But why do you want it? I can't explain it. You have been explaining it, she says. Please go on. Ashley looks at the tablecloth and shakes his head. He says that for one thing, lasting comfort becomes no comfort at all. All things in the world are perceptible only by contrast. For just as there is no heat without cold, nor light without darkness, it is climbing that throws all of Ashley's life into sharp relief. It is climbing that makes one feel. It is the driving mountain cold that makes the fire in an alpine hut so delicious. It is the sore and cramped muscles that transform an ordinary hot bath into a sensory revelation. It is the hours of grueling ascent that make a supper of sardines and biscuits and jam so much better than a thousand dinners at the Criterion. And it is impossible to live without hardship. The hardship of daily trifles, Ashley explains, every accumulating and impossible to ignore, is so much meaner than pain or cold or fatigue. These annoyances make one weak and petty and shallow, just as greater struggles make one wise. It's the little things that bring one down, he says. Delayed trains and burned puddings in drafty rooms. I was never so miserably cold on a mountain as I was in a drafty room. One can rise to dire occasions. 
but most of the time one, worns, one worries about one's pudding. It takes real struggle to see what life is. Then you realize you don't give two straws if your pudding's been burnt. Ashley watches Imogen across the table. Her gaze is steady and unblinking, her hand turning the silver band around her wrist. Then you climb for what it does for your life. Sometimes, Ashley says, but not always. For there is also the beauty. Ashley sweeps his cigarette across the room and says that to him, human architecture is a little bit of screen, an elaborate facade of iron and glass erected to hide the majesties beyond. There is nothing in the untamed earth that is not beautiful. Of a tamer beauties, Ashley swears that if one follows the streams up to the headwaters, the source of their fineness is very wild indeed. To walk the mare to glass at midnight is not to be witness to the not only to be witness to the exquisite mystery of the natural world, it is to step away from the metropolis, from mankind's hall of mirrors, and to assume one's place among the wild. One doesn't see beautiful things in mountains, Ashley says. One becomes them. Imogen smiles. She draws a little from her cigarette. It was a wonderful speech, and I'm glad to have dug it out of you. But I wonder if it's another joke of yours. Do you really mean this, or is it only what you think I wish to hear? You give me too much credit, Ashley says. I'm not so good a liar. I bet you're a very good liar, Imogen says. But I think you're afraid to be serious, because somehow you are so very serious. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Question for author. Um, when you started researching the book, how much did you know about Everest climbing back in that era, and was there anything about what you learned about it um, that surprised you? Um, I think I knew a casual amount about it. Um, I definitely didn't know. The, I mean, the technical knowledge of like the way that they climbed in the twenties is was is like pretty obscure, and I had a really hard time finding it. I read a lot of climbing manuals from the period, but climbing manuals aren't very good at getting a sense of what it actually felt like. Um, and I read a lot of literature, and there were a few books that were really vivid, but the problem is that a lot of those books are filled with British understatement, so they would say something like, it was really, it was, it was very cold, or something, when it was like freezing fucking cold, and they were like dying, and they had a frostbite. So you really had to read between the lines or find a few sources where, they really, where the descriptions were more vivid. But it was really different. I mean, for one thing, I mean, they, they chop steps. I mean, that alone is like completely different now. You can just front point your crampons. I mean, but I mean, I, probably the biggest difference is that they didn't know what they were looking at. Be looking at, at the upper mountain with telescopes. I mean, that's to, just to try to figure out what, it, it's so different from uh, a world in which we not only know what it looks, at, looks like, but um, can look at uh, satellites to figure out what the weather is coming, you know? I mean, they, they didn't even understand the monsoons, which completely determined sort of when people climbed Everest. And then, of course, there's the equipment and all these things. So um, in terms of surprise, I think, uh, I mean, almost everything is surprising about the way that it is if, because it's so different. The scale was incredible. They hired hundreds of porters. They brought so much stuff with them. It was just a sort of imperial model where you had to build a pyramid of things that went to the end, you know? So you needed, yeah, they brought magnums of champagne and they brought, you know, 10 foie gras and stuff. But they also just had to bring a ton of stuff because the whole system was predicated on having more and more stuff until finally at the very end you get two guys on a tent. I mean, it's the same now, but but it, it, was, it was just ridiculous. It was like a, a, a real army. But in the end, it, it, it's still 
boils down to this human element and there's a sort of continuity in that sense that no matter whether you have 500 people and you know 300 porters and Sherpas and all this stuff at the end you know it's George Mallory and Andrew Irvin and a uh, tent uh, you know at Camp 6 or something and they feel like crap and they're supposed to climb and suddenly it looks like the weather's okay so they, they have to do it. Is your uh, approach to the writing to uh, say for a particular chapter just go from beginning to end or do you find yourself writing, moving the story along, and going back and filling in additional detail? Um, I think usually I try to write a beginning to end, yeah. Um, with a book like this that's pretty, especially the historical parts, were had to happen in a certain way because there's a mystery involved sort of and there's a lot of plot elements that have to make sense so I I had to sort of plan that and so generally yeah the stories would sort of come out but I mean I also revised the book for years so so it it, it did wind up getting getting changed substantially but I have to say the good chapters were always almost the same it was like the bad chapters that you have to rewrite a hundred times so a lot of the war chapters like the one that I read probably came out of the pen exactly like that and almost the changes are incredibly trivial um, from from the first year to the sixth year and then there's other chapters that I'd write, write 500 times throw out and start over again uh, let me ask you and I've read the old book so the question I have to ask you is probably <laughs> too much of a spoiler alert here but um, so back to the uh, I like the historical stuff better too but the <laughs> stuff was great because it has the more the tension of looking back and also uh when I read it, Downtown Abbey was on. <laughs> my dad was born the same year as Charlotte, so I really, I really feel like I learned about that and the war stuff. But did you ever think about writing it? Did you know from the beginning it was going to be, uh, I don't know what to call it, a two-stream boat, whatever you call it? Mm -hmm. or did you? Was it originally going to be one or the other? Or no, uh, I think because the idea behind the story was always the of the weirdness of like a young guy like find somebody in our like us like being connected to this. I guess was like my way in because it's one thing for the past just to be there I mean we know that exciting things have happened but but somehow that doesn't seem to like affect our lives in a lot of ways but you know it's just something that happened and that's I guess I mean sometimes I feel that way about the past but you can if you choose to like feel something different and I guess that was the idea behind the book so the, the idea of in legacy is a, kind of a symbol of that right an inheritance like it's obviously an inheritance it doesn't have to be money it could be anything so so that was my way in, but you know, there were many times over the course of the writing the book that I wondered if I should have just written a historical novel because it, the the way that the story takes place, it means it means that it switches every time, and you don't want. I don't know if you guys have read books like where there's multiple parts and you're always there's like that one part that's really annoying. And you're like, oh god, it's this guy again. I don't want to read about this guy. Can we get to the next guy? You do. You want. You don't want to write that book. You want to write the book where you're equally interested in each chapter and you read the next chapter so you get to the next chapter and that you. But to do that is hard because people tend to pick favorites and to try to bring them up to equal quality is is very difficult. So I don't know if I'd do it again. Well, I think you do this because the plots, which I guess they always do, like the quiet American is the same as mm -hmm. yours. They sort of meet like this. They, mm -hmm. they don't run like this. They come closer and closer, yeah. Parallel. Yeah. You, you're learning as the modern guys. Right. They're, they, I think that was, pro yeah, exactly. It's not like it's like two stories that like, only like at the very end you're like, oh yeah, that, they, they went together. It's not yeah, like that. Yeah. It's like, it's like they're, the whole time they're, they're connected and it makes it a little bit more tolerable than, than just finding out at the very end that so-and-so is somebody's like long-lost cousin. Yeah. <laughs> it was all a dream. <laughs> it was all a dream. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and yet. What's more interesting in the Everest, uh, the early Everest episode? Um, well, 
Probably. I mean, I think I came in with everybody else, like, in 96 with the disaster and reading into thin air and all that stuff. But, you know, if you read that book, then you're, you, you're going to read something about George Mallory and Andrew Irvine di disappearing. And, you know, th I don't, for you, if you guys don't know the story, that they basically, it'll never be, well, hopefully it'll never be disproven that they didn't climb. And nobody knows. They were, these two guys in 1924 were last seen kind of, you know, in a, in a break in the, in a storm going for the top, and although it seems unlikely that they reached it, we don't know. And um, so there was sort of a heart. There was a mystery to that, and and then the, the the people themselves were so fascinating. I was already interested in people like the Bloomsbury Group, with whom George Mallory was connected, and the intellectual atmosphere of the time, the period of the war. It all kind of came together when I realized that those were the people who had been on these expeditions. And I think also just once you get interested in them, they're really they're really really interesting. It's just another world. Uh, yeah, a lot. I mean, I kind of still live out of a suitcase. <laughs> um, I I uh, I pretty much went everywhere in the book, um, including to Everest. Not I didn't climb the mountain, but I went to the base camp. Um, and the European locations of the book, like a lot of it, takes place in London and Paris. Um, I, I in Berlin. I, I lived in all those places. I wrote most of the book in Berlin, so they were all places that I had an, like a strong connection with, and that was why I did it. I think like I wouldn't have been able to do the dialogue and the British stuff if I hadn't already been obsessed with England for a really long time and gone to grad school there. So it was it was just sort of a, a hodgepodge of things that were already a part of my life, but I wound up going back to them a lot, and it created this weird lifestyle where I kind of would just you know drift from place to place whenever I had a friend who had a place where I could stay, and it's sort of persisted as my friends now. <laughs> yeah. So has the research you did, especially for the historical parts, but even so the, the sort of romanticized idea of Everest that they had back in the 20s, has it all like changed or maybe sharpened your own view of your present, your personal present, like in the sense of like your like contemporary <laughs> world you live in? Sorry. So like immersing yourself in the yeah. past and the romantic. Yeah. Did it all like change your own view of like the present? Definitely. I mean, that's that's a huge part of what this book is about, which is like once you get interested in this, it's great to be interested in things like this, but then it makes your own life seem really boring and trivial. <laughs> and I mean, the question is, you know, uh, I mean, to some extent, that's sort of maybe what mountain climbing is about. And I've, I've heard among uh, veterans, you sometimes hear that, although they don't necessarily want to go back to war, that, that things seem trivial after they come back. Um, and I wonder, if is, is it possible for us to give ourselves, give our life meaning without having to resort to, to risking our lives? But I definitely think that, that uh, Sometimes in reading about these these intense things, yeah, my life would seem boring, and, and and I think I try to you know maybe writing these books and reading about these people is my effort to try to live as close to that as I can. But you know, in the end, you still also have to choose your own life, and that that's a lot of what the the narrator of the story goes through, which is how seeing how his life can measure up to to these ideas, because it's also a lot about what it's like when you're in your 20s, and that's the characters in this book are all in your 20s, because you you have huge ideas about what you want out of the world, but they don't always measure up, and you, you, you can sometimes go against them very stubbornly. And so, but in the end, you probably have to, if you want to be a normal, happy person, you kind of have to choose your life. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.